Welcome back to the HVACR Radio Podcast. We've got Henry Papa with Spoiling On tonight. And we've got Chad, Ulysses, and Ruben in the house to talk about all their fun stuff this week. What do you guys got going on this week? Nothing fun, really. I had a pretty eventful couple of days. Started with, um, let's see, Friday. I installed the K2 um, evaporator efficiency controller. That went pretty well. The more I install them, the more I like them. So, did you register the points, Cameron? The serial? <laughs> register my points? Your points for my. Yeah. Okay. Because you were a KE2 <laughs> hater. Never Uh-oh. a hater. No, you were. All right. I wasn't a hater, but I wasn't a fan. Now I'm a fanboy of KE2. So. Yeah, you are. But <clears throat> you're a Cowboys fan, bro? Come on. No, never that. Oh, <laughs> uh, no. Let's see. Saturday, I was on call this weekend. Saturday, I got called out to a freezer. Um, one of the wires came off. The It's a three-phase, uh, has three-phase motors. One of the legs came off, so the motors were single-phasing. So that was a pretty simple fix. Sunday, I got called out to work on a rack. It was my first time working on a rack. So thanks nice. to, to Ruben, gave him a call for some advice. Since he is the the rack rookie, <laughs> true. But um, it was off on oil. Off it has seven compressors. Five of them were off on oil, so I pumped oil out of two of them that were full back into the reservoir and started the system up. Checked everything. Um, oil came back. There's a high load because it was off for like like 12 hours so the next day i came back and there's a two compressors that were off so i started looking around more and i found out that um, this rack doesn't have any type of head pressure control so the head pressure was uh, dropping pretty low and there's no load so two or three compressors were only running so it has a helical separator so i was thinking that we don't have enough uh discharge CFM going through that separator to separate any oil. So poked around, then Chad uh, came, and we were looking around, and we finally found out that um, the um, someone, we don't know who, had put one of the um, E2s um, on bypass for the fan, so the VFD was kicking out. I, we'd reset the VFD um it had a uh, proof fail, but it wasn't really failing on proof because we checked all the wiring. We had proof after it went to zero. Um, the VFD would shut down to raise the head pressure, but after that, after 30 seconds of it uh, shutting down, the system would go back into bypass. So I finally called a prime refrigeration uh the manufacturers of that rack and he went he could connect online and within two seconds he was like oh you see this teal that means someone's overridden that and i was like i know it looked odd but i really didn't this is my first time working with the e2 also so i really didn't know i did some reading but i guess i skipped that part (laughs) so we got that figured out and we haven't checked on it yet, but they haven't called, so hopefully it's still running. What did they override? <clears throat> the fan, the VFD. So the VFD would kick out, and it would stage the fans, but even with fan uh, cycling, mm-hmm. it has 10 condenser fan motors, so it would stage them two at a time. Even with two running, my head pressure would drop below 180 at night. You know in the condenser, the condenser control? It has the option to, like, where it says the condenser output on the, whatever it is, F2 or whatever the condenser control section is. Mm -hmm. If you go in there, it has the option of, like, overriding it completely off. And then, so it was going into bypass and bypass, rather than the VFD ramping the fans up and down, it was going into bypass and just staging fans on. But it was too, like, it needed to just shut all the fans off to keep the head pressure up. Like me and Chad were like running up and down, shutting fans <laughs> off to keep the percentage from going to zero, turn them back on, it'd drop. We'd have 30 seconds to turn one off, so we were just fighting it. But obviously the issue was someone put it in override mode. That was probably Chad. Yeah, what happened on Monday? Monday, 
that walk-in oh, cooler. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah I, <laughs> I wanted to forget about that. Yeah, I got bet. my, I got my butt kicked by a little cooler. <laughs> Man, it was. Um, thanks for bringing that up. Got you. So I get this call. Chad takes the day off. <laughs> it was supposed to be his call, so thank you. It was my son's birthday, by the oh, way. Yeah. Happy birthday. Happy and birthday. Anyways, I go. <clears throat> it's the compressor's off on thermal, and it won't reset, so I'm calling United <laughs> to find a compressor. Got my torches up on the <laughs> on the roof, and then I check it one last time, and it's out of thermal, so I was like, okay, that's good. So I turn it on and it keeps pumping down and my low pressure switch is bad because it doesn't shut the compressor off so we replace the low pressure switch and it still keeps pumping down so i'm checking my solenoid checking my valve i see a little nick on the sensing bulb so i'm thinking that the power head lost its charge so i get one replace it Put it on and it pumps down again. And by that time, I'm like, you know what? <laughs> I'm going home. Big picture. What time big, was it? Big picture diagnosis. So, actually, I think it just, the whenever I replaced the power head, the suction pressure was staying at 35. But mind you, this is a cooler 404A. So, usually, typically, I see it running around 60, 65 PSI. That's a 20-degree saturation 20 to 25 degrees, but it was running at zero. But I started, the next day I came back, started looking around, and it looks like someone, like, oversized the condenser. The valve is oversized. And I guess that's just how it's been running, and I really didn't put that together the first day. But I think Chad had to go out there (laughs) on Thursday. Well, because we were out there on Tuesday, or... It ran fine for a day, though. Yeah. It's not in warranty anymore. It's not in warranty. But, yeah. It, oh, yeah, then the defrost clock <laughs> fails right when we're about to leave. Like, it pumps down, and I look at it, and the it's a grassland defrost clock, and it has the red and green light lit at the same time. And I'm like, are you serious? <laughs> so I nice. go downstairs, I change it, it starts running, everything's good. And then Chad gets a call that it's not <laughs> working on Thursday. I was like, it's your turn. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but I guess it's my turn. Um, So I went over there. It was raining all this week, so it was kind of it was still a busy week. But I was mainly with Ulysses at all his calls. So uh, Thursday went back over there, checked uh, checked everything out. Everything seemed to be working all right. Um, I thought maybe the defrosts were or. Maybe the way the defrost got set when we replaced the clock, it was just running too long. Um, so change that around because it it's it runs for a very short amount of time to satisfy, and then it stays off for for a pretty good amount of time. So we were thinking maybe we can do off cycle defrost on that. Um, <clears throat> went down to check the temperature and noticed that the thermostat either had loose contacts inside or something was going on. But as the thermostat would kind of vibrate, um, you could hear the solenoid energizing and de-energizing. So just ended up replacing the thermostat and haven't got a call back for that yet. Hopefully we don't. Um, well, it's kind of everything brand new. Everything. Almost, yeah. Everything now. I almost replaced the valve, but I just replaced the power head. Yeah. So, and then today, um, just an ammonia count to NPM and had to replace, uh, or I guess rebuild a, a liquid valve and uh, change some belts on a exhaust fan. That was pretty much it for today. What about you, Ruben? What do you got going on? What about me? Listen to this side. That's how my week's been going. You want to elaborate? Or I is will. That it? No, it, 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 that's exactly how my week's been going. I've been um, been getting trained on more VRF stuff, and the more I get trained on it, um, I was talking to Ulysses about this earlier. I'm not gonna knock VRF stuff, but it <laughs> it doesn't seem very difficult in troubleshooting because you have a computer. 
that tells you everything. You never hook up gauges to it. And do you have troubleshooting, like, um, I guess, procedures on a PDF form? And it tells you what to condemn if your readings are not within range. That's the perfect job for you. No, it actually isn't. It's, it's actually boring. a perfect job for Ulysses. He loves using his computer. It, That's true. It is, um, I don't know what to call it. <laughs> so we've, uh, you know, we went to one call where compressor was throwing a code for overcurrent. The thing tells you to ohm out the compressor. Compressor was under the resistance um, allowable range. <laughs> Thanks, Chad. And uh, so you condemn the compressor. And you go to another one, and then you condemn a board. And then you go to another one, and you condemn something else. So you're just the guy that's condemning everything. <laughs> Do they ever let I you feel replace like a parts? parts changer, man. Do they ever let you replace the parts? I oh, I changed the parts today. Oh, nice. And I broke a screw. <laughs> <laughs> I I was gonna replace a. I actually did replace a uh, a diode on a, on an older Gen two LG VRF system, and um, so I did what you're not supposed to do and put the screw in with the um, with the drill. Or the impact, and the top one it went in smooth, right, and the bottom just kind of went in halfways, and then it started ooga ooga dugin. And then you just freaking drove. And it then I what? said, uh, I said, I, I think I'll be safe, and sure enough, <laughs> boom, broke the bro- broke the freaking screw, and it was on a heat sink. So <laughs> to make things it was work. a heat sink. <laughs> no, no what, it's not a heat there's sink. There's a big aluminum. Like what is that heat sink in the yeah, back? Yeah, but now it's not really pressed up against whatever it's supposed to be. No. So then what I noticed was that the bottom part of the uh, diode had longer like feet. Oh, no. <laughs> so I grabbed my uh, Milwaukee 18 volt drill and made it happen. I made a new yeah, I made a new hole and I put a self tapper, <clears throat> and um, everything's good. <laughs> Where's that in the troubleshooting chart? My, mind you, this is the first time they sent me out on my own. <laughs> You're fired, bro. <laughs> I hope so. Maybe if you keep screwing enough stuff up, they'll like move you out of the VRF like team and on to something else. So well, the other, the only other team really is the PM team, and I'm. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe they'll move you back That's onto the team. Yeah. All over. I'm not knocking anybody that does PMs, but yeah. after after a couple, it's monotonous. Don't they have a drive team? Uh, it's usually like the startup guys. Oh, well, the startup team? Yeah, they have a startup team. And I've done a few startups. I did a startup this week on a, on a LG system that had condensing unit on the 42nd floor. All the evaporators were on the 16th floor. None of the walls of the building are complete. So it's cold. It was 39 degrees that night and we were trying to start it up in heat mode. So we were trying to heat up rooms that were open to the ambient and all of our readings were funky. And it was like, dude, this is as best as, best as we're going to get. Cause the contractor wanted it done that night and it was close to like eight o'clock. So sounds some weird stuff. <laughs> well, if anything, it's an adventure. Nah. Yeah. What about you, Cameron? What'd you do this week? I didn't do anything. Aside from that? <laughs> Aside from doing Aside nothing? Aside from your usual do nothing? Uh, I went camping this week for a couple days. During the week? Sunday to... We were supposed to go Sunday to Thursday, but we came back on Tuesday because my daughter got sick. So Tuesday night at 10, 10 o'clock at night, we packed up and headed out. And came back. It's only like two hour drive, so it's not like nice too far. And then just normal catch up stuff after that. Oh yeah, hey, I get, now <clears throat> we have a giveaway coming up. Woo woo! So uh, shout out to True Tech Tools. I uh, reached out to them and they partnered with us to do a giveaway, little giveaway, a little some some. So keep your eyes peeled. Make sure you follow that. us on Instagram. We'll probably drop it on Monday and or post it on Monday. So 
Should be good. You should just say but today since the podcast will be out. Monday. All right, today, right now. Go <laughs> look at it. Go look at Instagram. It's there. The tool of the week is, uh, I'll probably talk to Henry about it. So are you going to tell us what it is? Nope, it's a secret. <laughs> you got to finish listening to the podcast to find out. All right, tonight we have Henry Papa with uh, Sporlin Parker. Is that right? Parker, Sporlin, Sporlin Parker. The mothership. But, um, Sporlin, Sporlin. <laughs> <laughs> um, how you doing, Henry? Doing well. How are you? We're doing pretty good. You got anything you can uh, talk about from your, your uh, last week? Sure. Yeah. So um, I'm sure we'll talk about it in a little bit, but I recently took a new position with Sporlin and actually Microthermo. Um, and I'm going to enunciate that Microthermo because I know a lot of people, when they hear about it, they call it Microthermal or Microtherm, but it is called Microthermo, which is our controls end. Um, so we've owned Microthermo now for about, I want to say it's about 15 years. Um, but we get into enterprise uh, EMS systems, BAS systems. So I'm taking a role with them. And just this week, I've been programming a few convenience stores up in the Northeast. So it's been a, a crash course, but really cool to see that we're kind of venturing out outside of just refrigeration. We're controlling refrigeration, HVAC, lighting, and energy. So it's pretty neat. So are you working on the back end of the uh, microthermer stuff? Or are you working on individual store programming or what, what are you doing with the microthermer thermo? Yeah, it's actually a little bit of both uh, the background programming and then doing some of that implementation for um, the actual store owners themselves. So when they want to interface and see what their store is doing, they can see it. Oh, that sounds actually, that's one of my more favorite things to do in uh, refrigeration, I think, is the controls aspect of it. Uh, I think that's pretty cool. Awesome. Do you, uh, Henry, can you give us a quick run, uh, just a rundown about your, your a brief rundown about your history, your career, and then um, how you got started at uh, Sporlin and what you obviously do there? Sure. Yep. So, uh, I mean, to start from the beginning, my dad is slash was a uh, HVAC recon- uh, contractor. So I spent my summers growing up um, helping him. I was his assistant. So especially here in Florida, he was sending me into the hot attics in the summertime. Um, I went to school for chemical engineering. Um, from college, I went um, into a sales training program with Parker Hannafin. Um, for two years, I was doing more factory automation stuff. So I was in the industrial space working with the automotive industry. And then I got the opportunity to move back home to Florida with Sporlin. Um, it was a field that I had already worked in previously with my dad. Um, and to be able to get back home, I just had to jump at it. And so for the past three years, I've been a sales engineer with Sporlin. Um, a couple things that I've done that I'm very proud of um, outside of just supporting contractors, outside of supporting uh, wholesalers. I did the Sporlin podcast. I've done a few of our training sessions and webinars on YouTube. Um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. Loved learning about the refrigeration side and started doing some work with some of the larger supermarkets with controls and I uh, just kind of fell in love with it. And now again, I'm starting a new role with Microthermo. So your dad had you crawling around in hot attics at a young age? Oh, yeah. <laughs> we won't talk about how young I was. <laughs> Does that fall under any kind of slave labor laws or anything? <laughs> uh, that's pretty cool. I think everybody that we've had, or a lot of the people that we've had on the podcast so far, no matter where they end up, they kind of started at some point in a hot attic, attic somewhere. <laughs> oh, yeah. Awesome. I think uh, Ulysses is going to start off. He had some questions for you about the Sporlin product line. Yeah. Hey, Henry. How's it going? Hey, hey, I just wanted to see if you could touch on the new uh, ZoomLock Max. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so if you are familiar with ZoomLock, well, I'll start with if you aren't familiar with ZoomLock. It's a refrigerant press technology, so connecting copper refrigerant lines uh, using a press tool. So very similar to the press tools that have been on the market for 30 years uh, in plumbing. Now it's available through ZoomLock for refrigerants. So we're, you know, up to 700 PSI. So pretty much every refrigeration system that you'll come across, you can use ZoomLock for. And then we also just 
uh, made available our push product. So again, instead of having to use a press tool to lock the fittings in, we simply have a push technology. I know a lot of people hear about that. They think it's similar to SharkBite, but I can assure you the technology is a lot more advanced than that. Well, I was going to see if you could also talk about the ProR uh, smart tool that y'all have. Um, I think y'all have two different variations. We do. Yeah. So a few years ago, we came out with what we call the smart service toolkit. So those are Bluetooth gauges, wireless gauges. Uh, I believe we're the ones that patented that technology. So um, we have those available for the HVAC contractors. And about two years ago, we released the ProR versions which have a little bit better of a battery life extended Bluetooth range. So you're talking about 300 feet away from the sensors um, and all the way down to negative 40. And one of the great things about our uh, temp sensors is that that they are clamp style. So I know when you're working on larger industrial systems, you can use those clamps to go up to uh, two and an eighth uh, suction line. And uh, they're temperature calibrated, right? Yes, correct. Okay, nice. Also, yeah, and then oh, let me uh, just elaborate too. The um, the ProR sensors they're um, actually a uh, strapped on type, so there really is no more limitation to suction line size. Oh, okay. Hey, Henry uh, Ruben here. I um, as far as dryers go, for example, um, liquid line dryers as cores. How important is the orientation? that you install these in orientation as far as like vertical versus horizontal mm, no you know how um arrow yeah no there's no arrow <laughs> <laughs> i wish um you know how the dryers are uh, s- sort of a flat on one side concave on the other mm-hmm. the the dryer course is there a uh, specific orientation that y'all recommend yeah you want the refrigerant going from outside in and then going through the middle. And so we have the gaskets in between. I, I see what you're getting at. Um, you would have the gaskets in between. So I'm trying to think of if there is an orientation. And that's a good question. I don't know if I've ever got that. What's your, what do you typically do with it? Uh, <laughs> no comment. No. <laughs> yeah, I take them out and I look at it for about a minute too long. And I'm like, which way does it go? And I just end up flipping a coin and making yeah, sure I think the that's what fit. most of us do in the field is just uh, it either it's shaped differently a little bit on one end. Yeah. It's either the way it came out, it goes in or yeah, I usually just put it back right the way <laughs> yeah. they came out. And, and along those same lines, I was also going to ask since you touched up on it on the gaskets are gaskets required between the dryer core themselves and the plate that separates them when you have more than one. As long as, sorry, let, I'm just looking up your first question right okay. now. Let me let me find that because now I'm like, we're playing uh, stump Henry. <laughs> yeah, I had a feeling that would happen. <laughs> and I was thinking, I was like, oh, there's no, there's way nothing they could ask about me. <laughs> yeah, so it looks like you're going to put the the side that has the opening of the core, right? Do you understand okay. what I'm saying? You're talking about like that, the, the concave side? Yes. So oh. that is going to go towards the outlet of the shell. Okay. Oh, okay. That's yeah. Now. I think that's. Write that down. All right. right. So, yeah, of course. I've you been installing them the backwards for 10 years. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go back to every wreck I've ever worked on and replace them. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Keep buying those cores. <laughs> um, and yeah. So the second question was Are the gaskets necessary in between the uh, cores? themselves and the um that plate that separates the, your, the your middle, dryer course. the middle plate middle plate well you have multiple more than one plate more than two plates anyways that's the question <laughs> your first question was good your second question was not good <laughs> he hung up oh he yeah. hung up all right let's get him back <laughs> yeah um, in between that spacer, I don't think there is a gasket. I think the only gasket would be in between the end plate. Yep. There you go, Ulysses. Oh, I, I, was I win. I put gaskets everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. It looks like we're failing on most of this 
simpler stuff here. And that's why we do ammonia refrigeration. (laughs) (laughs) Let's go back to the basics. Um, Can we talk about just like a balanced port versus conventional port TXV and the difference in the applications that we would see those in? Yeah. So, you know, going back to like trade school days, when you look at expansion valves, there's typically three forces at play. I know you've probably heard this a million times, but the thermostatic bulb is opening the valve. Then you have your spring trying to close off the valve, as well as your, uh, I'll call it the equalizer or your evaporator pressure, also trying to close off the valve. Um, But then when you have, you know, you think about refrigerants, they're high pressure liquids. Um, and so whenever you do have a swing in head pressure or, a, a, let's say, a drop in evaporator pressure, that pin inside of your expansion valve will tend to shift. It, it will move as your head pressure moves. And so we invented this thing called the balance port. And so all it is is a uh, single push rod, if you're familiar with expansion valves, that has surface area on the bottom and top of the, the actual pin. And so as your pressure change in the system it's going to just stay steady. Um, they're, they're equal surface areas, so any, any change in pressure isn't going to affect where that pin actually is. And so typically where you see, and really I like to tell people there's not really too many bad times to use a balance port expansion valve. Um, the the one, one type of system I would say are just really small systems like these new propane units where you probably wouldn't want to use a balance port because they're so... Uh, small in tonnages but anytime you have the the ability to change your head pressure um rapidly so like a a reach-in or a walk-in um anytime those doors are opening that head pressure is going to change um anytime you're doing fan cycling or head pressure control um, that would be a great time to have a balance port valve because anytime a new fan kicks on it's not going to force your expansion valves open flooding your uh, evaporator coils flooding your compressors. Nice. I think uh, um, Ruben had a question about the some EEV valves. Um, what was it, Ruben? The AAA or the AA? Yeah, so I've run across a couple cases where they were, um, they had a SER AA valve and the the BTUs for the case was really low compared to the um, to the uh, EEV sizing. Um, I'm not sure where I'm going with this. Give me up. <laughs> no, that's all right. So, are you asking about sizing? Well, like well so so my I guess my question would be um, since the EEV was a lot larger than uh, as, as far as capacity than the case itself was um is it okay if you limit the maximum opening steps on that particular SERAA valve yeah absolutely yep if that fits your system better um yeah you definitely limit it it just depends on the controls that you have but yeah you can limit the amount of opening that your valve will uh, definitely open okay because that's uh what we've done in the past and uh I guess a follow-up question to that would be, is there any plans to make an SCR AAA or anything of that sort? Um, have you looked into any pulse lift valves before? I'm sorry? Have you worked with any pulse valves before? I, I don't believe so. Yeah, so pulse width modulation, pulse width modulating valves, PWM valves, or uh, SPW valves, what we call it, um, is essentially a, uh, a solenoid valve that is open for a specific duty cycle. And I'm going to butcher what a duty cycle is, but for um, our standard period of six seconds, that valve will be open for any amount of time in between that six second period. Then it closes, then it opens to allow the proper amount of refrigerant into your evaporator before closing off again. And so instead of having a stepper valve, which is um, trying to modulate flow, um, the valve, the pulse width valve is just opening for a specific amount of time to allow the right amount of refrigerant into your system. Is there a maximum amount of cycles on a valve like that? 
Yeah, I, th- I mean, most of these, since they are opening and closing every six seconds, um, they're tested for over a million cycles each. Um, so it's it's a, it's a question I'll have to get back to you on no, the exact no, expectancy. Like, life expectancy. Uh, I just was wondering because we you know we've seen solenoids that just go out in the field, so I was wondering if there was a solenoid that was actuating that often. Is it the same type of construction as a typical solenoid, or do they do something different with it to make it compatible with the pulse width modulation? It is different. It's not just your standard um, solenoid valve. Okay, that's what I guess my question was. But what's nice, I I mean, I know we'll probably cover these valves later on, but they do have interchangeable cartridges too. So depending on what size system you're working on, or let's say you have a a change, you want to only run one EVAP instead of two, you can add a larger... Uh, coil or a larger orifice inside of the valve. Okay, so the same body is it one body for all sizes, or it's like the normal where you have like a a range of sizes for a specific uh, valve body, and then you would go up to the next valve body and have different cartridges for that. Correct. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. Hey Henry, so if I was to attempt to replace an SERAA valve with one of those uh, pulse valves, um, would I need to replace uh, controllers or h- how different are these controlled? Yeah, it would depend on the controller you're using um, because some are, you know, for our, our Kelvin controllers, they're only you know, specific to stepper valves. Um, so you may have to change controller as well. Do y'all have a specific controller for those valves? Yeah, we have a couple, and this is one product that I love to talk about, and I'm going to go on a full tangent here, so um, I'm sorry if there are more questions, but uh, we have our new SCS controller, so I don't know if you all have seen it at all, Um, but if you're familiar with our Kelvin controller, basically this is a new standalone superheat controller, so all it's trying to do is maintain superheat. Um, we have two different versions. One is for stepper valves, um, either unipolar or bipolar, and then one is for pulse width valves. Um, the great thing about a couple great things about this controller: number one, it's completely overmolded in plastic, so it could be um, submerged in water without any issues. Um, so you could leave it mounted in a refrigerated space. Um, when you buy it, it comes pre-wired with your temperature sensor. It has your uh, connector for your valve, whether it be a pulse width valve or it's a stepper valve, so a little M12 connector. And then it also has your pressure transducer um, adapter as well. And then it's all powered by 120. So you really could just, you know, uh, plug it into a, a wall outlet if you really wanted to. And then it's Bluetooth controlled. So, you know, once you activate the Bluetooth, you could be outside of the refrigerated space if you're walking, or if you're working on a walk-in and be setting this up. You could be troubleshooting. Um, so there's a ton of, of benefits to this controller. Um, number one, since it's already pre-wired, you could use this as a diagnostic tool. You can plug it in to an outlet. You could attach your uh, pressure transducer, your temperature sensor, and just leave it running. Um, because it's a controller, because it has memory in it, you can track and data log for you know 14 days at a time, come back and see what the system is doing. Um, what I also love about it, too, is you could essentially use it as an SMA-12. You can hook it up to your uh, SCR valves. You can, you know, override the valve and open it 100% and close it to 0%, see if the motor's bad or if you've had any shorts. Um, so a lot of really cool things you could do with this controller, and it's so simple to set up. Again, it's pre-wired, and then all you have to do is tell it what valve you're controlling, what refrigerant, and then what superheat you want it to maintain. So on the the using it as an SMA12 alternative, the only, I guess, downside maybe that you have to have the 120-volt power versus uh, the contained power from the SMA12? Exactly, and that's a question I have for you. I mean, is that a big negative? or Because I know in the, the markets that I've worked at, um, they typically do have a 120 outlet somewhere close. Um, and, you know, most people will have like an extension cord, but I know if it's in in the daytime when there's customers, you probably don't want a <laughs> extension cord just running through the, the store. Yeah. I, most of the work that I've done on electronic expansion valves hasn't been, I, I had no, I've never done work in supermarkets before, so I can't answer that question. But I know that on the 
just having the SMA 12 portable is nice, but it's also, um, it's also a fairly expensive tool for the average technician to own unless their company, their company owns one. So I didn't know what the, I was actually going to ask you what the, if you had any idea what the cost difference is between the tool that you're talking about and the SMA 12. Yeah. And so, yeah, that is definitely a uh, good point of contention, something to think about. Now, I'm not trying to tell people not to buy the SMA 12s. Again, that's a great diagnostic tool. Um, the STS is, I want to say, half the price of the SMA 12. And so that's going to vary on where you're buying it, which wholesaler you're going to. But again, using that as a uh, truck stock item, you know, let's say you do have a valve controller board that goes bad, you already have the spare SES that you use as an SMA 12, now you could get yourself out of a pinch. Um, if you need a diagnostic tool, there you go. You can use it. Um, you can even use it as wireless gauges, um, so to say. So it's a pretty good alternative. Yeah, it sounds like v- value-wise, you're getting more for your money out of the SCS or STS? SCS. SCS. Sam, Charlie Sam. Yeah, so the SCS tool sounds like you know, you're getting, like I said, more for the value by having the data logging functions and all that uh, kind of integrated into the same controller. Seems That seems pretty cool to me. Yeah. I was going to ask you more on these uh, pulse with uh, modulation valves. Is there like a certain, what's the max size y'all make? And then does it require a pressure transducer? Or is it just looking at a uh, suction line temperature to control it the valve? Would- yeah, it would require a suction line transducer because you are still maintaining superheat. Uh, it's not doing a two-temp superheat. And I want to say for like our, let's just say 404A, um, you could probably get up to about 15 tons. Let's see. Yeah, for if you're maintaining a five-degree EVAP, um, you could get up to 20 tons of 404A. Is it, would it be more, how would you compare the EEV versus, versus this valve? Are they pretty comparable or? In perform, so the thing about the pulse with valves, it, it does pulse. So I would say on like close coupled systems, um, self-contained systems, you probably don't want to use a pulse with valve because that, you know, the, the pressure could be fluctuating, but on a rack system, um, since you do have a pretty large suction header, um, you know, these small fluctuations aren't going to affect the actual suction pressure. I had a, I wanted to go back to the, the solenoid. We, you know, in the field, whenever we're replacing a solenoid valve or installing a solenoid valve on a new system, it's not, it's recommended that you don't just go off of the line size. Can you kind of touch on that and explain a little bit why the solenoid valve should be sized, not on just, not just by line size alone? Absolutely. So with solenoid valves, ones that are a little bit larger when they're not direct acting, direct acting meaning when you apply power to the coil, the valve opens. Um, Anything above, anything larger is going to be pilot operated. So it actually uses some pressure drop across the valve to help shift the actual pin and port open. Okay. So the minimum amount of pressure drop you need for that is one PSI. So on a larger system, I mean, on a larger solenoid valve, when you don't have that pressure drop, you can open it for the first time because there's no pressure on one side, so you have a big pressure drop. But then once the pressures have equalized through the valve, then when you go to turn it off, the valve won't close. So a lot of times when we have troubleshooting calls, when someone is complaining about a solenoid valve that's just stuck open, they think it's debris. But most times than not, it's just because it's sized incorrectly. And then when you look at our solenoid valve sizing, I mean, for like a 5 eighths inlet by outlet, we have valves that, you know, go down to probably like three-quarter ton up to 15 tons. So if you go into a wholesale branch asking for a 5 eighths by 5 eighths valve, you could get a 15-ton valve, and you're trying to use this on a three-quarter ton system. That doesn't sound like it would work very well. <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> yeah, so the main importance when you're when you're looking at sizing, if you're going off of our catalogs, you just want to make make sure that at your actual tonnage, your actual capacity, you have at least one pound of pressure drop. And I would say 
if you're sizing off your normal operating conditions, do about three tons. So then when you do have some type of low load scenario, winter time, then you still have some buffer room to play with. So the same logic, or maybe not the same logic, but the same premise applies to when you're uh, sizing regulators as well, right? Exactly. So what's the what's the symptoms that you would see on a improperly sized regulator that maybe like oversize uh, for the application? Yeah. Um, it's just going to be fluctuating a little bit more than you would see. It's not going to be smooth control. You're going to see these swings, almost like a, a hunting expansion valve would be doing. So uh, suction line dryers, is it recommended that if you install one, that you can leave it on there or do you recommend removing it after a certain time? Yeah, I would definitely recommend checking it. So I'm going to start with that because there is a misconception that you do have to remove suction line filter dryers. Um, and not necessarily, I mean, as long as you don't have too much pressure drop across that filter dryer, you can leave it in. Um, and that's going to be about three PSI, I would say, um, just enough to where you start, you know, causing issues with your compressor with a, a larger compression ratio or a lot, lack of efficiency. Um, if you're going to leave it in temporarily, I'd say you could let it get up to about a five pound pressure drop across it. And that's when you probably want to at least change the core out or replace um, the, the actual um, filter dryer if it's a, a enclosed one. Um but yeah, I think the, the key point with suction line filter dryers is just making sure you don't have a large pressure drop across it. Okay, and so that does that go the same? Uh, let's say a technician walks up on a uh, walk-in cooler system, replaces a compressor. Um, I know we've been told uh, if you see a suction dryer, just take it out, or we've also been told just replace it with a new one. What would you recommend in that scenario? Yeah, so I would say if... If you do come into a system and you replace a compressor, it has a suction line filter dryer, I would say replace it. Um, because anytime you do a new install, I mean, compressors may not be completely clean from, from the factory. You don't know what's still in your system from the last compressor, especially if it um, had burnt out, you might still have contamination inside your system. So I would say replace it. And then again, start to monitor it, go back after a day, after a week, see how it's performing and then go ahead and either swap it out again and see what it does or just go ahead and cut it out. Hey, Chad here. I had a question for you. Um, we have this account that uh, run, they have banana room, banana ripening rooms, um, going back to the liquid line solenoids. Um, we've come across, they got six rooms, and I'd say probably four out of the six, we've actually, they have the E19 uh, liquid line solenoids, and we'd ha we'd have to, We've had to rebuild them due to them leaking by, um, but they do short cycle a lot. Is that something that you guys have seen an issue with the short cycling and wearing the wearing the valves out prematurely? Is the coil on tight? Is it the coil that's going bad, or is it the no, actual? It's the larger? actual. It's the actual. Um, I guess the needle uh, wears out. Huh. Have you, um, do you replace your filter dryers every time you replace the solenoid valves? No. I, I'm just, I'm curious because I, I would wonder if that's a contamination issue or something inside of your system that's wearing them out. How long do they last? Um, that's a good question. Um, the systems have installed. How long do you think Cameron? They were there when we took over the account. Six they? years, maybe. Yeah. So just within the last like two years, I would say. So they probably lasted five years. Okay. And it hasn't been all of them. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I guess that's a good I mean, a good thing to check if there's contaminants in the system. Yeah, you know, one of the other things, it's probably not a a big deal. But how are they oriented? Are they just you know horizontal with the coil facing up? No, they're on a vertical. Okay. Because, yeah, one of the things, I don't know how, how much this would affect it over time, but being vertical, you still have that uh, plunger, and you can get some extra wear on one side, which could allow it to leak by. Right. Okay. 
Perfect. Yeah, I've got a qu- uh, question going back to the filter that we or the filters that we were talking about. What makes the Sporland filter dryer different from other filter dryers in the industry? Yeah. So with our standard catch-all filter dryer, we have a blend of desiccants. Um, there's going to be a lot of filter dryers that you see on the market that are just you know molecular sieve, which is great for water. Um, and so without water, you typically don't get acid inside of your systems over time. Um, but we add an, another uh, desiccant that's going to absorb acid um, because you think about like a POE oil, right? As POE oil starts to heat up, it breaks down into water and acid. So even though there wasn't acid in your system, um, just additional heat in your system can break down that POE oil to allow for acid to form. So if you only have molecular sieve, you're only going to absorb mainly moisture. You're not going to be able to retain any of that acid. Um, So over time, our filter dryers will uh, protect your system much better than your standard filter dryer that you see on the market. And you're and when you're saying that you're talking about just the regular filter dryers, not a HH filter dryer. Correct. Yeah, and that's something I, I do like to cover. This. So HH, um, I know I, I've gotten this a lot. Like HH, does that mean high heat? Uh, and that's not necessarily the case. HH, um, we're just two engineers' names that came up with this blend of desiccants. And so what they did was just add activated charcoal into the um, core itself. Um, they added activated charcoal to absorb any uh, carbonaceous um, contaminants that come after a compressor burn. And it's great for low temp systems because you can get uh, wax to form from um, breakdown of oils. I wanted to ask about oil filters for, uh, I've seen it on rack systems. They have uh, like the uh, replaceable oil filters on, mm-hmm. on rack systems for compressor protection and they have oil filters that have a built-in bypass and then they have oil filters that don't have a bypass mm-hmm. is i un- i never understood the i mean i understand the concept of a bypass so you still get oil to the compressors but wouldn't that be defeating the purpose of the filter if the filter clogs and then it starts bypassing the filter yeah but again it's i think it's it's a lesser of two evils to have the bypass because then at least you still have albeit oil, uh, dirty oil, at least you have oil to your compressor. So it's rather to have something better than nothing at that point. Correct. Okay. Yeah. I was just curious about that. I've seen it in the catalogs. I'm like, why would, why in the heck would I want to bypass dirty oil to my compressors? But obviously it makes sense. Hey Henry, I was going to see if you could go over just the types of uh, head pressure controls that y'all offer. Yeah. So we have a a few different types of head pressure control valves. Um, Our most basic is the ORI, which I know a lot of people are familiar with the ORI from uh, evaporator pressure regulators. Um, But the good thing about the ORI versus any of the other kind of head pressure control valves we have is it is adjustable. Um, So especially now, um, as with like uh, the AWEF, the annual walk-in energy factor, um, as OEMs allow their head pressure to start to float, um, you don't have to go ahead and replace the full valve to get a lower head pressure setting. You can just adjust it. Um, so with that, we have the ORI. And in tandem with the ORI, you have to have a differential valve because as you're blocking refrigerant into your condenser to allow your head pressure to build, you still want to make sure you have a positive amount of refrigerant to your expansion valves. And so you have a differential valve going from discharge to the inlet of your receiver. So as refrigerant is being backed up into your condenser, you can still have refrigerant flowing as long as that differential is um, over the set point of that differential valve. A couple other styles we have. Um, to put those two valves together, uh, we have the OROA, which you may see it or called a uh, dome-style head pressure control valve, but it's doing the same thing. Um, as your head pressure starts to fall, the pressure in the dome is going to close the valve to the condenser. The, um, <clears throat> sorry, I uh, blink in on the, the name of that line. I don't want to call it the drop leg because it's not really a drop leg. Um, but it's it's condensate. it's blocking. Yeah, it's blocking your condensate line. There you go. And then as the differential 
across the actual valve from discharge to receiver falls off once it gets under that set point about 20 psi then it's going to allow discharge gas to bypass straight into your receiver again making sure you still have refrigerant getting into your evaporator coils and then we also have the lac lac meaning a low ambient control and that's common i, I hate to use this term headmaster but i mean really that's that's what it, it mimics is the old headmaster valves um, so these are going to respond to receiver pressure. So as your receiver pressure falls, then it's going to close off your condenser, allowing pressure to build, discharge gas, bypasses straight to the receiver until it gets above that set point of the head pressure control valve. And then it's going to allow um, your condenser to freely flow again. Hey, I had a question about that. We actually just worked on a system that had the, the LAC, but it was a 100-180. Okay. Okay. And then so we looked it up um, on your guys' bulletin, and it states, um, well, we were trying to figure out if it was 100 or if it was 180. So is there a way to designate or figure out which one it is by that? Yeah, great question. So that is what we call our uh, dual setting um, LAC, meaning it does have two different pressure ranges that we can operate at. So from the factory brand new, it's going to be set at the higher pressure range. So if you had a 100 slash 180, standard straight out of the box, it's going to be set for 180 PSI head pressure control. Now, if you want to operate at the lower pressure range, 100 PSI, you'll snip that um, charging tip on the top of the element. That's going to allow the, the air out of that element. And now you're operating at the spring pressure um, that's inside of that element. And so one of the other things i like to point out is after you do snip that um, charging tip, you want to um, crimp it just to make sure you don't get moisture inside of the valve. Awesome. Thank you. I noticed that on some of the, oh, well, I don't think it's an OROA valve, but some of the head pressure control valves have like a sensing bulb. Kind of looks like a TXV power head with a bulb. What's inside that bulb, and what's it? I guess the other OROA valves have, is it nitrogen that's inside the dome? Yeah, typically it's going to be an uh, inert gas. Um, in the, the LAC, like 5s or 10s with the remote bulbs, it's going to be a higher pressure um, gas, just because those are made for like your 410A systems. Um, so they have to operate at higher pressures, so that's how we accomplish it. Um, so one of the things with those bulbs, you do want to have it on a pretty stable temperature. So I would say on your discharge lines is fine. Okay. And then uh, could you go over the charging procedure? I know y'all have a chart for the additional charge when using head pressure control valves. Yeah. So this is something I see in, in a couple of the Facebook groups. But, you know, to, to have these head pressure control valves work, you know, what they're trying to do, they're trying to back up refrigerant into the condenser. The reason it does that is to take away the surface area in your condenser to, um, you know, prevent uh, heat dissipation into the atmosphere. And so if you don't have enough refrigerant inside your system, you're not really accomplishing anything. It's still going to be um, allowing heat to transfer to the ambient um, instead of, you know, preventing that. And so the bulletin we have is bulletin 90 30-1. And really, it, it's it's pretty straightforward, but all you're trying to do is calculate the volume inside of your condenser. And based on what ambient conditions it's your system's working at, there's going to be a density factor, um, essentially how dense your refrigerant is at specific conditions. But all you're trying to do is calculate the volume in that condenser so you have enough refrigerant to block off the surface area. Um, so all you're really having to do is measure the straights that you have in your condenser coils, the return bends that you have. We have all the, uh, you know, multiplication factors that you need. And once you're done doing that, it should take you, you know, five minutes or so to calculate it. Then it'll tell you how much extra charge you need to add to your system. Now, one of the, the shortcut ways, I've heard this a lot, um, you may be charging too much, but you know, if you can charge about 75% of your receiver, that typically is enough to, to last you through the winter time. That's, 
probably the easier <laughs> easier yeah. way to do it if you can find the the capacity of the receiver for that refrigerant that you're using. But yeah, I've yeah. used the other method too, and it worked pretty well for me. It's just a lot of math, and some people don't like math, especially right. when it's cold on a rooftop. So <laughs> yeah, you don't want to think too much. Right, I could understand that. And you know, one of the things I don't know how how easy this is, but if you could contact your OEM and see if they can tell you how much extra charge for winter, um, especially with microchannel condensers, that's the one um, type of system that that ninety thirty one volt in doesn't cover. Um, if you have a microchannel condenser, reach out to your manufacturer, and they should be able to tell you how much extra charge you need in the winter time. Yeah, that makes sense because I've always tried to, you know, wonder how they calculate that for a microchannel coil since it can hold very little refrigerant in there. I had another question about um, just a quick rundown on how to size just a TV or maybe select the right power head for, say, low temp or medium temp. Yeah, so our best bull, well, there's a couple things. We have our Bolton 10-10. That's the standard expansion valve Bolton that we have um, at any of our wholesalers. Um, but it kind of walks you through a, a few things. Um, so one of the things with nomenclature, I'll start with the power head. Let's start there. Um, anything residential, air conditioning, you're typically going to have a GA charge or a CP charge. So your common nomenclature that you would see for a power bed would be a KT, let's call it a 43 VGA. So that GA is indicating that that is for a air conditioning application, or you would see a VCP 100. Okay. Now, um, anytime you talk about commercial refrigeration, cooler, so medium temp, you would see a C. Just, just a seat. So a KT forty three VC. Anything beyond that lower low temp, you would have the Z in the part number. So a KT forty three VZ or KT forty three VZP. Does that make sense? Yeah. What's so, the KT in the so K- in the other number? Yeah, KT is just the kit number, and forty three is just the size of the helmet. But yeah, um, a couple other things to hit on that too. Um, I am just for reference for people listening and actually looking at the bulletin. I'm on page three of bulletin 10-10. We have the recommended thermostatic charges. And then you'll see all the different um, nomenclature for the different charges that we have. And one of the things I like to point out in the far right column, it says actual thermostatic charges. Um, that's great to know because there's a lot of times where a wholesale branch will think they don't have the right power hit for you. Um, but this will tell you if it's the same charge inside of that thermostatic bulb. Okay. So let's say a wholesaler only had a KT 43 NCP 100 in stock, but you need a VCP 100. Okay. If you look over in this actual thermostatic charge, because they have the same charge on the inside, that means they can be used interchangeably. So they tip, they technically do have the right charge for you. Hopefully that helps. Yeah, I had a, another follow-up question on expansion valves, and it has to do, maybe it's along the same lines as my oil filter question, but why do they put the screen on the inside of the valve on a weld-in valve that you can't access unless you weld the unbreeze the valve again to get to it? Yeah, that's a great question. And that's why I love the um, bodies with the, the removable strainer with the, the, the nut on the inlet. Um, that way they are easily serviced. Um, I'm guessing that's for like, I don't know, you know, I don't know why that design. I think it just allows um, either OEMs or contractors to add that screen in for extra protection. Um, but I mean, if you are doing a lot of service, uh, I would definitely recommend the inlet trainers that are removable. And then you guys have so many different expansion valves. Why, you know, aside from like balance port or, uh, you know, things like that, but why, what are the different applications? I know we can't run through them all now, but why would, why would somebody choose one valve over another valve? Is there determining factors in 
application that would lead you to go towards one valve versus another? Yeah, and I think the reason our product line is so large is, you know, Storm is an 85-year-old company. Um, we've been making expansion valves since the beginning. So I think over time, a lot of it is just legacy. And that's one thing we are doing is just trying to consolidate our product line, um, kind of getting rid of the, the ones that we hardly ever sell. Because at the end of the day, they all do roughly the exact same thing. Um, the, the couple little things that I like to point out are, you know, a balance port valve or an externally equalized valves. Those are the types of valves that are going to perform better than your um, non, your internally equalized or your, you know, traditional um, cartridge, not a balance port. When, when would somebody choose an externally, externally equalized valve over an internally equalized valve? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, the rule of thumb is going to be anytime you have over five pounds of pressure drop across your evaporator coil, um, excuse me, let me, anytime you have, um, over one ton, um, you want to have an externally equalized expansion valve. Anytime you have a distributor, um, because that's such a large pressure drop across that distributor, um, you want to make sure your valve is seeing the right evaporator pressure. So yeah, one ton and, uh, and, a uh, distributor, those are the key times to add an externally equalized expansion valve. Um, but really, there's there's not a, a wrong time to use one. So, in summary, the externally equalized valve will probably give you better performance or more accurate performance based on the pressure drop through the coil, but internally equalized valve is... Cheaper. <laughs> Cheaper to install. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, because yeah, you you got to make sure you do install that external equalizer. I've seen pictures like that where the external equalizer is just capped. Tapped off. <laughs> yeah. Doesn't work like that. It doesn't work very well. <laughs> you guys got anything else? Did you have anything else in here that you wanted to touch on? Yeah, just a couple things. Um, you know, as we are talking about expansion valves, our build valve kit, the QBQ kit, is a great truck stock item to have. Um, I, the way I used to work in sales with contractors, right, I, I love giving you products that are going to help you out of the jam. Um, and I feel like the QBQ kit is one of those items. So what the QBQ kit is, it's a little Pelican case with different valve bodies, different cartridges, different power heads. So no matter what type of system you're working on, as long as it's under about five tons, you could build a valve on your truck. So instead of having to drive out to a wholesaler, waiting for it to get delivered, you can build it up on the spot. Um, you can keep extra power heads in there. So no matter what type of system you run into, if you need to replace a power head, you have one already available. Um, so it's a, it's a very useful tool. Another um, line of valves that we just came out with are our universal AC valves. So for contractors doing a lot of AC work, we have really four valves in total to get you from a ton and a half up to five tons of R22, a ton and a half up to six tons of 410A. Um, they're very wide range. So again, if you're in a pinch, if you need to replace an expansion valve, you already have it on your truck. You know, minimal, minimal part numbers. And of course, again, that SCS, I can't talk about that, <laughs> that controller enough. Is Are the universal AC valves that you're talking about, are those adjustable stem valves? Yes, they are. Okay. I was yeah, they're, good they're adjustable. Um, they have a built-in check valve, so you can do AC, you can do heat pumps. Um, and again, I mean, it's for... R22, you got two valves. For 410A, you got two valves. So four valves total can you know keep you for a whole season. You just were mentioning heat pumps, and you triggered a question that I had. What makes a biflow filter dryer biflow? Yeah, it has a check valve. Oh. Uh, that's exactly it. It has a built-in check valve to allow the refrigerant, whether no matter which way it's flowing through the outside and. We're down here in the south. We don't know anything about heat pumps. <laughs> <laughs> Anybody else? No, I think that's it. We've we've uh, yeah, you covered everything really well. We've peppered you with all the questions that we have. Yeah, those are some good questions, man. I got to go back and study. <laughs> don't. I didn't. Damn. I didn't mean to to play uh, stump Henry. I'm no, sorry. I'm sorry. Good, <laughs> and that, that's one thing. Like, I don't want to. I hate when, you know, you come off as 
trying to be like a know-it-all. Like, I don't know it all. I've only been doing this role for three years. There's always something to learn, and I love being challenged. If I don't learn those things in the field, I don't know where I'm going to learn it. So I, I enjoy it. Well, we really appreciate you coming on here. Uh, did you have anything else you want to say, Ulysses? Oh, no, I was just going to mention for the SCS, you know, it does require 120, but I know a lot of, like, um, battery, like M- like Milwaukee or DeWalt have an adapter that goes right on the battery. So do you know if that would work to power up the SCS? We need to find out. Yeah, I'm going to find out. I will test that out. Because Mil- Milwaukee just came out with... Um, that 120 on your M18 volt battery. Pretty nice. compact, so I was just wondering. Well, I know the DeWalt one can't do it, <laughs> but the Milwaukee one probably can. <laughs> I have a Ryobi one. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we'll check that out. Maybe we'll have to get one and, and do some testing and figure out if we can make that thing portable. Yeah, definitely. So we can. You cut out right there. What, what was that? Oh, I said I have a demo kit. I'll have to find out this weekend. Hey, is, that, I know... <laughs> is there an app that you need to download to connect to that to the SCS? Yes, great okay. question. It is uh, Sporlin Tech Check. Um, but yeah, it's App Store, um, Google Store, Android Store. I don't know what they're all called anymore. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Sporlin Tech Check. Okay. The SCS tool is free, but the app is three hundred dollars. <laughs> <laughs> However you want to spend it. <laughs> well, like I said, uh, I think that there. Well, Ulysses is busy trying to download the app right now, so I'll just uh, close this out. But we really appreciate you coming on the uh, podcast, and hopefully, maybe we can get you back on here. I know we we covered a lot of material, but maybe we can get you back on just to focus on one thing at a time and uh, dive a little bit deeper into some of these different areas about uh, valves and regulators and. Uh, a little bit more of the nuance to the to the different product line. Um, yeah, absolutely. Like I said, we appreciate you coming on here and taking all of our questions. Yeah, thank you again for having me. Um, if anyone needs anything, check out uh, sporlin.com now. Um, I'm in all the Facebook groups, it seems like, so feel free to reach out to me on Facebook. Um, and also for sizing, our new virtual engineer on sporlin.com is a great tool. It's very user-friendly, so if you do need to size any valves, great tool to use. Is that uh, is that new from the product selection tool? It is. So this is one that we wanted to be web-based, so you didn't have to have your computer. Um, so you can do it from your phone. You can do it from the website. Um, it still has the same type of interface, the same inputs. Uh, it looks a little bit different, but it, it's cool. So especially when it comes to expansion valves, when you do the sizing, it'll show you which valves can handle your application, whether it be mechanical or electronic. Yeah, I like that about the product selection tool. I would just put in some crazy numbers and see what <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> see what valve popped out and then what the pressure drops were. And you know, <laughs> uh, was, uh, I don't know. I guess I'm a nerd that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. All right, good deal. Well, thanks, Henry. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks a lot, thank Henry. You again. Thank thanks, you. Man.